I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading 1 Corinthians chapters 14 through 16. Now, before we go into chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, it's very important that you have a really good understanding of the notes that I've written on chapters 12 and 13. So, you may want to go back and review those. Those are on the 6th of September. Or you can click on the link on today's written notes and it'll take you to that location. You can read what I've uh, what I've written. But that gives us the background for chapter 14 here. In chapter 14, beginning with verse 1, we see the superiority of prophecy over tongues. Verse 1. Follow after charity and desire spiritual gifts, but rather that you may prophesy. For he that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto God, for no man understandeth him, howbeit in the Spirit he speaketh mysteries. But he that prophesieth speaketh unto men to edification and exhortation and comfort. He that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifieth himself, but he that prophesieth edifieth the church. I would that ye all spake with tongues, but rather that ye prophesied. For greater is he that prophesieth than he that speaketh with tongues, except he interpret that the church may receive edifying. Now, brethren, if I come unto you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you, except I shall speak to you either by revelation or by knowledge, or by prophesying or by doctrine? And even things without life giving sound, whether pipe or harp, except they give a distinction in the sounds, how shall it be known what is piped or harped? For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to the battle? So likewise ye, except ye utter by the tongue words easy to be understood, how shall it be known what is spoken? For ye shall speak unto the air. There are, it may be, so many kinds of voices in the world, and none of them is without signification. Therefore, if I know not the meaning of the voice, I shall be unto him that speaketh a barbarian, and he that speaketh shall be a barbarian unto me. Even so ye, for as much as ye are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that ye may excel to the edifying of the church. Wherefore let him that speaketh in an unknown tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is it then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will pray with understanding also. I will sing with the spirit, and I will sing with understanding also. Else when thou shalt bless with the spirit... How shall he that occupieth the room of the unlearned say Amen at the giving of thanks, seeing he understandeth not what thou sayest? For thou verily givest thanks well, but the other is not edified. I thank my God I speak with tongues more than ye all. Yet in the church I had rather speak five words with my understanding, that by my voice I might teach others also than ten thousand words in an unknown tongue. Brethren, be not children in understanding, how being in malice be ye children, but in understanding be men. Now, as we pointed out at the beginning of the comments in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 
It's important to note here that there are no passages in Scripture promoting speaking in tongues in public church services. Now, if that sentence that I've just made here troubles you, then please go back and read the notes that I've written uh, before chapter 14 here in chapter 12, the introduction there. Now, let's do a little bit of review from chapters 12 and 13 regarding prophecy and tongues. Both prophecy and tongues were given as gifts of the Spirit for the purpose of partial revelation from God. While prophecy stands on its own, tongues are only useful in corporate worship if someone gives an interpretation of those tongues. Now let's begin with an overview of these first 20 verses of chapter 14. We glean from chapter 14 that a lot of tongue speaking was taking place without interpretation. Now, without interpretation, it's meaningless jabber to those listening on. For the purpose of clarity, the King James Version added the words unknown when describing the Corinthian practice in verses 2, 4, 13, 14, 19, and 27. Now, you'll notice in the King James Version that that word is italicized. That's to protect the integrity of the translation. Italics in the King James Version indicates a word that's not really translated from an original Greek word that's in the text, but added by the editors for clarity. It's important to understand that the tongues used as the model for the modern-day movements are patterned after Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. When you read this passage, you'll see that they spoke in languages that they had not learned, but they were languages recognizable by those who were listening. In other words, they were not unknown tongues, they were real languages. In this chapter, we see a lot of distinctions made between the benefits of prophecy as opposed to speaking in tongues. We'll distinguish the occasions when one is used over another as we look at verses 21 and 22 when we get down to them in a few moments. We do see from the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 14 that these Corinthians were, in fact, practicing tongues in their local church services which were not recognized as known languages. It's worth noting that Paul does not completely invalidate the use of these unknown tongues just in public church meetings. Now look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1 again. Here's what it says. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Without endorsing or condemning the unknown tongue, he does acknowledge the practice with his term tongues of angels in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. Now let me say again, there's no evidence of tongues used in the book of Acts that were in fact unknown to the listeners. Only here in 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14 do we have any hint whatsoever of this practice of unknown tongues being spoken. And what does he say about these unknown tongues? I mean, Paul, what's he saying about the way they practiced in the Corinthian church here? Well, let me challenge you to read this chapter, and, and you honestly tell me that Paul's endorsing the use of these unknown tongues in the church service. Because I'm here to tell you, read the chapter closely, and you'll see that he is not endorsing these unknown tongues. He's without question telling the Corinthians that they have no place, these unknown tongues have no place in corporate worship. Now, there is an occasion in the church service when a known tongue is appropriate. We'll see that in verses 21 and 22. 
Paul sums up his thoughts on the practice of imperceptible tongue speaking in verse 19 when he says this, Yet in the church I had rather speak five words with my understanding, that by my voice I might teach others also, than ten thousand words in an unknown tongue. Now in the written notes of BibleTrack.org, I break down the grammar of verse 1 there, which says, Follow after charity, also known as love, it's agape, and desire spiritual gifts, but rather that you may prophesy. But I want to give you some of the detail that I've written in the written notes of BibleTrack.org for the following verses, verses 2 down through verse 20. First of all, in verses 2 and 3, we see that no one understands the one speaking in tongues, but everyone understands the one who prophesies. Then in verse 4, we see the one speaking in tongues only edifies or builds up himself, unlike the one who prophesies and builds up others. In verse 5, we see that greater is he that does the prophesying than he that does the speaking with tongues. In verse 6, we see that speaking in tongues has no value to the audience, unlike the revelatory gifts, those of prophecy which give the revelation of God. In verses 7 through 11, we see that speaking in tongues is contrasted to musical instruments which have distinct, meaningful sounds. Public tongue speaking is unprofitable, and then here's a quote, for ye shall speak into the air. In verse 11, Paul says that tongue speaking is like listening to a barbarian. In verses 12 and 13, we see that only with an interpretation is tongue speaking edifying to the church. And uh, then finally in these verses, verses 14 through 20, here's Paul's admonition. Do your tongue speaking in private unless you can interpret your own tongues. In other words, tongues plus interpretation equals revelation, which is the same thing as prophecy. Now, what about praying in tongues? Well, Paul gives latitude for the practice and may be insinuating that he practices praying in tongues himself. However, he's once again clear when he says in verse 19, Yet in the church I had rather speak five words with my understanding that by my voice I might teach others also than ten thousand words in an unknown tongue. Notice the operative words here, in the church, as in corporate worship. Now, having read from the beginning of chapter 12 through chapter 14, verse 20 here, and having listened to my podcast, how can it be honestly proposed that Paul is endorsing speaking in tongues in corporate worship? Keep in mind, these are the only passages we have in all the New Testament epistles dealing with with the practice of speaking with tongues. However, then Paul explains an exception in the next two verses, verses 21 and 22. Now, these two verses are really important, so let's pay really close attention here. Verse 21. In the law it is written, With men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people, and yet for all that will they not hear me, saith the Lord. Verse 22. Wherefore, tongues are for a sign not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. But prophesying serveth not for them that believe not, but for them which believe. Now, here are two very important verses when it comes to explaining the purpose of speaking in tongues. First of all, note that Paul quotes from Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 and 12. That's when he says in verse 21, "...in the law it is written." 
with men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people, yet for all that will they not hear me, saith the Lord. Now, based upon Isaiah's prophecy to Israel, to whom is he referring when he says, I will speak unto this people? Well, of course, he's speaking to Israel, the Jews. So if the this people refers to the Jews, who are the people with the other tongues and other lips about whom he's speaking here? Well, that's obvious. In Isaiah 28, they're the Gentiles. So here's the point Paul's making. Gentiles speaking in tongues as a sign to Jews is a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Then Paul goes on to verse 22 when he says, Wherefore tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. But prophesying serveth not for them that believe not, but for them which believe. Well, there it is plainly stated. Tongues are for a sign to the Jews, to unbelieving Jews. Now, don't minimize these two verses. They're very important. God always dealt with the Jews by giving them signs. I mean, remember the manna from heaven, the water from the rock, the plagues on Egypt, the battle of Jericho? Well, the list goes on and on. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. You see, the, the Jews were show-me kind of people. Had to have signs. Paul plainly says here that speaking in tongues is one of those signs to the Jewish people. Although this Gentile Jew operation is clearly stated in Isaiah 28, and that's from which Paul directly quotes, these two key verses are often overlooked, but these two verses, by the way, explain everything. Now, I'd suggest, to put this in proper perspective, that you go back and look at my commentary notes on Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 and 12. That's the two verses that Paul quotes here in verses 21 and 22. Now let's take a brief detour to discuss the occurrences and acts of speaking in tongues. The first occurrence was back in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. But wait, there they didn't speak in unknown tongues. They were recognized as real foreign languages. It says so right there in Acts chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Oh, and by the way, there was more that happened there than just speaking in known tongues. There was also the cloven tongues like as a fire that danced around on top of their heads, and also the mighty rushing wind which filled the house. Now, does it seem a little strange to you that today folks talk about Acts 2 as being the modern-day pattern? But they seem to be completely satisfied to exclude two-thirds of the miracle that took place on that day. They exclude the fire and the wind. So what was the purpose of tongues on the day of Pentecost? That's an easy question. It was a sign to the Jews, a miracle. Such was the case when the Samaritans were evangelized in Acts chapter 8, and then the Gentiles in the household of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Each time that this miracle was manifested, Peter was they're demonstrating to the Jews that these were God-ordained additions to the newly formed church, which previously was a Jewish-only entity, and it was done with miracles. These two verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 21 and 22, well, they validate that exact usage of tongues. As 1 Corinthians is written after the occasion of Acts chapter 2, chapter 8, chapter 10, 
I mean, why integrate speaking in tongues into the Corinthian church service at all? Well, that's clear in verses 21 and 22. When there are unbelieving Jews present in accordance with the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 and 12. Did I mention that you really need to go back and read those those verses in that chapter and get the proper context? I mean, after all, Paul quotes directly out of that chapter when he makes his comments here in verses 21 and 22. Now, here's the reality. When there are no unbelieving Jews present, Paul says to prophesy instead. They don't need the miracle. And then he gives you some reasoning for that uh, perspective in verses 23 to 25, because visitors will think you're mad. Verse 23, If therefore the whole church be come together into one place, and all speak with tongues, and there come in those that are unlearned or unbelievers, will they not say that ye are mad? But if all prophesy, and there come in one that believeth not, or one unlearned, he is convinced of all, he is judged of all. And thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. Now, what about people who dropped in to visit with the Corinthian church? Verse 23 answers that question. He says, will they not say that you're mad? That's what Paul says about this practice of rampant tongue speaking that was going on in Corinth there in the church. He tells them that people can be edified with the giving of God's revelation, which is prophecy, instead. In verses 26 through 40, we see that it's really all about order. Verse 26, How is it then, brethren, when you come together, every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation? Let all things be done unto edifying. If any man speak in an unknown tongue, let it be by two, or at the most by three, and that by course, and let one interpret. But if there be no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church, and let him speak to himself and to God. Let the prophet speak two or three, and let the other judge. If anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, let the first hold his peace. For ye may all prophesy one by one, that all may learn, and all may be comforted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. What? Came the word of God out from you? Or came it unto you only? If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. But if any man be ignorant, let him be ignorant. Wherefore, brethren, covet to prophesy, and forbid not to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. Well, Paul then gives some very specific instructions about how the manifestation of the spiritual gifts are to be controlled in the church service. Now, let's go ahead and stipulate some important points we saw earlier. What's prophesying compared to speaking in tongues? Now, if you recall our discussion from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 through 13, then here's what we determined there. The early church, they had no Bibles like we do. 
Now, here's my question to you. When you hold your Bible, do you contain in your hands the completed revelation from God, or don't you? Well, they had no such Bible. Paul describes prophesying and tongues with interpretation as the giving of partial revelation to the church. That's the way he describes it back in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 through 13. Well, the whole chapter there, actually. He said that this would have to be sufficient until, then he says, that which is perfect, meaning complete, that which is complete has come. Now, here's another question. Is your Bible the completed revelation to the church? Now, the Mormons don't think that it is. But my question is, do you? It's interesting to me that nobody seems to be writing down the tongues with the interpretation or the prophecies they hear in their churches on Sunday. It's puzzling to me because if they really believe that God is giving fresh revelation, wouldn't that be important enough to record and and really to publish for everybody to be able to read? I mean, the Mormons published the prophecies of Joseph Smith, and, and they study them alongside the Bible. Well, I'm just afraid that the reality in churches that practice tongues and prophecy in their church service is more because it's, well, a lot of fun and it's exciting than it is useful and edifying. Verse 26 seems to drive that point home as being the case in the church of Corinth when he says here, How is it then, brethren, when you come together, every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation? Let all things be done unto edifying. So here's where Paul gives some rather structured guidelines about the exercising of tongues and prophecy in the church services. They begin here in verse 27. Number one, he says, no more than one at a time speaking in tongues. That's in verse 27. And I've been a lot of uh, charismatic church services where there were dozens of people speaking in tongues at the same time. But it's specified here, no more than one at a time. And secondly, in verse 27 here, it says, After no more than three have spoken in tongues sequentially, sequentially is important, it says, and that by course, let someone interpret those tongues. If there's no one to interpret, let those intending to speak in tongues remain silent. That's in verse 28. Let two or three prophets speak with one prophet, judging the validity of their prophecies in verse 29. And fifthly, let the prophets exercise self-control and wait for another to finish. No interruptions of another. God does not work in an environment of confusion. We see that in verses 30 to 33. Oh, here's one, verse uh, 34 and 35. Uh, sixth point I'd make here. The women are not permitted to speak in tongues. It's a shame for them to do so. Paul's very clear about that here. And then finally, in verse 40, he says, Let it all be done according to this order. Now, in verses 36 to 39, Paul seems to be tackling a feeling of superiority that he perceived the Corinthians were feeling over Christians in other churches because of their act of exercising of spiritual gifts within their worship services. Paul says, in essence, 
If you're really as spiritually advanced as you project yourselves to be, then you should acknowledge the scripture validity of that which I've just set before you. However, in verse 38, he seems to be saying, if you don't acknowledge what I've just taught on this issue, then your ignorance remains. Now, with regard to this discussion, in conclusion, let me just share an observation from personal experience. These seven guidelines that I just went over with you in verses 27 to 40 are largely dismissed, I mean literally ignored by most churches where tongues are permitted in the course of their corporate worship. Why is that? Well, in my opinion, these guidelines of restraint just suck the fun right out of the practice. In the church at Corinth, it appears to have been carnal people. Well, we saw that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1-5. through 5, Tells them they're carnal. It appears to be carnal people just having some fun in their church services. Paul issues this stern correction to them. There's no mention in Scripture of tongues in regular corporate worship except as practiced at Corinth and corrected in these three chapters in 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14. And it was practiced by the most carnal church found and recorded in the New Testament. If only churches today would heed the simple, easy-to-understand instructions of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14, then there would be really no scriptural dispute on the practice of tongues in corporate worship. However, many won't. Why? Well, it's because of the uninhibited, emotionally charged, frenzied atmosphere of a Corinthian-style worship service. It's just too much fun to leave behind for those folks who care more about having their emotions tickled than mastering the power of the Word of God. Well, excuse me, was I a bit too candid there, do you think? Then we come to chapter 15, different subject. The gospel defined in the first four verses. Verse 1, Moreover, brethren... I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. In the first four verses of this chapter, we have a formal definition of the gospel. Paul defines the gospel as the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. To summarize, that's precisely the aspect of Jesus' incarnation that makes our salvation possible. It's the combination of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that makes Christianity unique among all world religions. Since these four verses constitute the very essence of what we preach about God's salvation through Christ, Let's spend a little bit of time analyzing these verses. First of all, the conjunction, moreover, leading off in verse 1. That's translated from the simple Greek conjunction, de. And it's used to tie this presentation of the gospel message to the thoughts at the end of chapter 14. There, back in 14, the subject was the heavy emphasis that had been placed on the manifestation of spiritual gifts at the Corinthian church. Notice again that Paul refers to these letter recipients as brethren, 
And that's despite the rowdy environment that existed in the church there. Paul reflects on the fact that he was the one who had personally preached the gospel message to them at the beginning. Actually, it was on Paul's second missionary journey when he first arrived to minister at Corinth in Acts chapter 18. According to verse 11 there, he spent 18 months in Corinth. Now, notice in our text here, verse 1, that Paul says he preached the gospel to them. And then he says specifically, I quote, "...which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand." So while the gospel itself was going to be defined as the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in verses 3 and 4, there is a necessary reception of the message on which these Corinthians subsequently stood. If you'd like more detail on this, then take a look back at Acts chapter 18, verse 8, where there we find it says, And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, and were baptized. Now let's take a look at what we have so far with regard to the action items associated with the gospel. Well, we see that they received the gospel message, which is expanded in Acts chapter 18, verse 8, as having believed on the Lord. That's the necessary component which leads to salvation. The Greek word for believe is pestuo, and it's the very same root as the noun for faith, which is pistis. Hence, to believe in Jesus Christ means, literally, to exercise faith in Jesus Christ. The Lou and Nida Greek Dictionary defines the verb pistuo this way, to believe to the extent of complete trust and reliance. You see, salvation's a faith thing. When you understand that faith in Jesus Christ for salvation is comprised of believing the efficacy of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and determining to receive it as your only means for getting to heaven, well, that's what salvation is. That's what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, and combined with Acts chapter 18, verse 8. That's exactly what the Corinthians did. Now notice verse 2. It says, by which also ye are saved. Here's the deal. you got to be saved. And when you believe and receive the gospel message, you are saved. The remainder of verse 2 might throw you a little bit if taken out of context. Actually, a clear understanding of the context develops fully several verses down in chapter 15. It centers around the resurrection both of Jesus himself and believers afterward. It seems that there were several in the church of Corinth who'd been taught that the resurrection is not really important. So with that in mind, understand that the the phrase here, unless you have believed in vain, that phrase directly applies to those who discount the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, if you don't believe that Jesus has the power over death, then your faith in Jesus is in vain. In that scenario, Jesus would not be able to save anyone. Finally, in verses 3 and 4, Paul gives the formal definition of the gospel. That's the Greek word euangelion. It's almost a transliteration into English. And it means good news. Here's the content of that good news. It's the death of Jesus for our sins. It's the burial of Jesus. And then it's the resurrection of Jesus. While there seems to be no dispute among the Corinthians with regard to the death and burial of Jesus, 
We see in the balance of this chapter 15 that his resurrection was a hot topic there at Corinth. That's why Paul is careful with his formal definition of the gospel to list the resurrection as an absolutely necessary component in the gospel message. And again, without the resurrection of Jesus, one's faith in Jesus for salvation, well, it's just, it's just vain. The witnesses to the resurrection are listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning with verse 5. And that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve, and that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also as of one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, that am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I have labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so ye believed. Well, in these verses, Paul names some of the witnesses who saw the resurrected Christ. Of course, he saw him too, a fact that he points out in verses 8 through 11. Two instances about which he may be speaking come to mind. The first was his miraculous conversion on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. But the other occasion is in Acts chapter 14 where Luke reports in verse 19 there, it says, And there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium who persuaded the people and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city supposing he had been dead. This is perhaps the instance, the Acts 14 instance, that he mentions in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1-10. through 10. That's where he says he visited the third heaven. That's a reference to God's abode. After all, they did leave Paul for dead back in Acts chapter 14, after they stoned him. Anyway, he says that he saw at that point the resurrected Christ also. In verse 9, Paul claims his apostleship and and he defends it a bit. The fuller discussion of Paul's apostleship is to be found in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses we've already read in these podcasts. Uh, these comments right here serve as an addendum to that discussion. Now, how about those mixed-up Corinthians? Look at verses 12 through 28, verse 12. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised? And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. 
Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom of God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. I'm still amazed today at how so many mature teachers make no attempt to reconcile their doctrine so that all their positions on Scripture are consistent. I mean, the Bible is what it is. It isn't contradictory. As Bible students, we need to see it all fit together. We see in verses 12 through 19 that the Corinthians had a problem with this as well. There were people in the church at Corinth who did not believe in a bodily resurrection. Paul immediately points out the inconsistency of that position, since, after all, we know that Christ did resurrect from the dead. His argument goes on. If there's no bodily resurrection of believers, then Christ didn't resurrect either, which means our faith and preaching are in vain. There is no forgiveness of sins, and those having been among us who've passed away, well, they've perished. He concludes ridiculing that inconsistent view in verse 19 when he says, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. You see, Christ's death and resurrection is the cornerstone of our salvation, a point which Paul reiterates in verse 20 when he says, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. In verse 21, Paul then pursues a line of doctrine that he more fully develops in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. The spiritual death sentence brought upon mankind because of Adam's transgression. Verse 22 says that Adam brought death, but Christ brings life. Verse 23 says that Christ is the first fruit of those to be resurrected. That's a reference to believers. We find a little bit of prophecy in verses 24 to 28, where we see a mention of the reign of Christ during the millennium and the subsequent events immediately following that 1,000-year period. That's the occasion when Satan is loosed from the bottomless pit, and finally he's destroyed in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. In that same chapter, death and hell are cast into the lake of fire. Then all the enemies of God will have been destroyed once and for all, including death. That event in Revelation chapter 20, verses 14 and 15, marks the end of specified events in Scripture and the fulfillment of all prophecy. Revelation 21, verse 1 says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. So to put it simply, Revelation chapter 20, verses 14 and 15, well, those verses mark the end to which Paul refers here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 24. The new struggle-free, adversarial-free beginning starts in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. This picture of Christ putting all enemies under his feet has its foundation in Psalm chapter 110, verse 1, where it says there, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Peter embraces this prophetic psalm when he declares on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, Verses 34 through 36, here's what he says. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, 
The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. The Greek word for Christ, as you've heard me say many times, that Greek word is Christos, which is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Mashiach, which is the Greek word for Messiah. The Hebrew word for Messiah is Mashiach. Now, how about another wacky Corinthian idea? Look at that in verses 29 through 32. Verse 29, Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? If the dead rise not at all, why are they then baptized for the dead? And why stand we in jeopardy every hour? I protest by your rejoicing which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage hath it me if the dead rise not? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Verse 29 indicates that they were a little mixed up on another issue also. Apparently they practiced some sort of a ritual of baptizing for the dead. That's perhaps a practice carried over from their pagan background. Paul points out how inconsistent it is to baptize for the dead when you don't even believe the dead are to be resurrected. I mean, what would be the point? By the way, the Mormons take this verse 29 and, well, they run with it. They've developed a formal procedure for new converts to be baptized for all their dead relatives so they too can have eternal life. That's the point of their intense interest in genealogy. You join, you look up your ancestors, and you get baptized for your ancestors. There's absolutely no mention of such a practice anywhere else in the New Testament. Paul only mentions their wacky practice of baptizing for the dead in this passage to show their gross inconsistency in their denial of the resurrection. He's not endorsing the practice. Paul immediately integrates this pagan practice into his discussion to demonstrate how inconsistent their doctrine is as he once again runs with the futility of the no-resurrection scenario in verses 30 to 32. Next two verses, verses 33 and 34, admonish those Corinthians to stay away from bad company. Verse 33, Be not deceived, evil communications corrupt good manners. Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. These verses deal with testimony. Verse 33 says, Be not deceived, evil communications corrupt good manners. In other words, you become who you hang with. When you hang with godless people, your morals will become loose and your doctrine disjointed. The implications are that these Corinthians have become doctrinally confused because of their attempt to integrate their life in Christ with their life in the world. And, let's face it, they just don't mix. Now, everything you need to know about your heavenly body is found beginning in verse 35 down through verse 50. Verse 35, But some man will say, How are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? Thou fool, that which thou sowest is not quickened, except it die. And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be, but bare grain. It may chance of wheat or of some other grain. But God giveth it a body as it hath pleased him, and to every seed his own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, and another of birds. 
There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differeth from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body, and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last, Adam, was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit, that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Well, since we're talking about the resurrection here, inquiring minds want to know, what's my glorified body going to look like? First of all, there are a lot of different kinds of bodies under God's creation. We see that in verses 37 to 41. The term celestial here is derived from the Greek word epihuanos, and it's a compound word combining the preposition epi, which means upon, with uranos, or huranos, the word for heaven or sky. On the other hand, the term terrestrial comes from another compound word coming from the same preposition epi, with the word for earth, which is gay. Uh, thus, the Greek epigeos refers to our upon-earth body. Paul compares the resurrection of our bodies to planting a seed. The seed planted looks nothing like the plant that shoots forth from the ground, a point he further makes in verses 42 to 44. Therefore, our glorified or celestial bodies may bear no similarity whatsoever to these earthly or terrestrial bodies, well, in comparison, like the seed planted that uh, shows nothing of the uh, resemblance to the plant that comes from the seed, and uh, that's the same analogy that he draws here. These bodies may not resemble those celestial bodies. Our current bodies have limitations and flaws. Our glorified bodies will not. Verses 48 and 49 point out that our earthy bodies, uh, the made-out-of-dirt bodies that we have right now, they were patterned after that of Adam, but our glorified bodies will be patterned after the glorified body of Jesus Christ, who's referred to here as the last Adam. First John chapter 3, verse 2 says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Well, that settles it. Our glorified bodies will be like Christ. And, by the way, Mary and the disciples recognized Jesus in his glorified body, just in case you were wondering. Verse 50 points out that our current bodies are not fit for heaven. Gotta have a new glorified model. Now, here's a mystery. We see it in verses 51 to 58. Verse 51, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. 
O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Paul gives a brief explanation of the rapture. The Latin word raptus means a carrying away. The rapture, by the way, is not the same as the second coming of Jesus Christ. The basic position that I advocate with regard to the timing of the rapture is commonly referred to as pre-tribulation, premillennial. In other words, I'm confident that Scripture teaches that the tribulation period of Revelation chapters 6 through 19, that period takes place prior to the 1,000-year rule of Christ. Furthermore, I'm comfortable with the position that the resurrection of believers to heaven, well, that that takes place at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation. Incidentally, other good Bible teachers have a variation of positions on timing of these events. While many people commonly refer to the rapture as the second coming of Christ, technically that's incorrect and, and that promotes confusion. Here's why I say that. In this passage, as in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, Paul states that Christ doesn't actually return to earth at the rapture, but instead believers meet him in the clouds. His actual return all the way down to the earth doesn't take place until the end of the subsequent seven-year tribulation when the final battle of Armageddon in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21, when that battle takes place. Most prophetic passages refer to the actual second coming of Jesus Christ after the tribulation, as in the 70th week of Daniel, is what we're talking about there when we talk about the tribulation. If you're looking for clear rapture verses, you have really only two, and that's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 through 58 in today's text, and also 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Now, the two rapture passages that I just mentioned give us the following details. We see that Jesus descends from heaven in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, and also in that same verse, the dead in Christ rise first. Then in verse 17 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, living believers rise next. And then we see in 1 Corinthians 15.51 that not everyone will die, but all believers will receive a glorified body. In verse 52 of 1 Corinthians 15, we see that this process is instantaneous. And finally, in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, we see that from that time forward, believers will never again be separated from Jesus Christ. Now, if you're looking at the written notes of BibleTrack.org, I've provided a chart there, the chart that I've been using for years, which is a prophecy timeline, which depicts the premillennial, pre-tribulation rapture position. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 54 and 55, Paul loosely quotes from Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8, along with Hosea chapter 13, verse 14, and that's about the completeness of the deliverance that takes place. In verse 56, he shows that sin brought death, and sin is exposed by the words of the law of Moses. Well, that's a thought he develops more fully in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 25. Finally, in verses 57 and 58, he gives us a word about the victory that's ours in Christ as believers. And then a challenge. Here's the challenge. Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. In other words, we have victory 
Now let's live like we have victory. We change subjects when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, talking about collecting the offering. Verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the church of Galatia, even so do ye. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. And when I come, whomsoever ye shall approve by your letters, them will I send to bring your liberality unto Jerusalem. And if it be meet that I go also, they shall go with me. In these four verses, Paul gives some instructions regarding giving. In this passage, his remarks are not intended to give a comprehensive overview on Christian giving, but they do provide information on a couple of its aspects. He specifically makes mention of laying aside offerings for the saints in Jerusalem on each Sunday. Now, some have disputed that verse 2 is an indication that we're to bring this offering to the church gathering place on Sunday. They think that it teaches to simply separate it from spendable income. However, verse 2 seems to indicate that Paul has encouraged them to have it already collected so that it will not have to be gathered after he arrives. The lesson we may derive from these verses is that Paul is teaching the practice of going to church on Sunday, the first day of the week, and taking your offering with you when you go. Oh, one more thing uh, that we can glean from verse 2 here. Proportional giving according to income. Here's what he says in verse 2. As God hath prospered him. You also notice that these particular funds were being collected specifically for the church in Jerusalem. Incidentally, Paul follows up on this call for help for the saints in Jerusalem in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. As a matter of fact, he goes into more detail there regarding the spirit and intent of giving, especially in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 verses 6 through 15. And then in verses 5 through 21, we have some final instructions and some salutes. Verse 5. Now I will come unto you when I shall pass through Macedonia, for I do pass through Macedonia. And it may be that I will abide, yea, and winter with you, that you may bring me on my journey whithersoever I go. For I will not see you now by the way, but I trust to tarry a while with you, if the Lord permit. But I will tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost. For a great door and effectual is open unto me, and there are many adversaries. Now if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear. For he worketh the work of the Lord, as I also do. Let no man therefore despise him, but conduct him forth in peace, that he may come unto me. For I look for him with the brethren. As touching our brother Apollos, I greatly desired him to come unto you with the brethren. But his will was not at all to come at this time. But he will come when he shall have convenient time. Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong, let all your things be done with charity. I beseech you, brethren, ye know the house of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that ye submit yourselves unto such, and to every one that helpeth with us, and laboreth. I am glad of the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus, and Achaicus, for that which was lacking on your part, they have supplied. For they have refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge them that are such. The churches of Asia salute you, Aquila and Priscilla salute you much in the Lord, with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you, greet ye one another with an holy kiss. 
the salutation of me, Paul, with mine own hand. Paul here outlines his intended route on his way back to Jerusalem. It's a route that matches the account of Acts chapters 19 and 20. Now, verse 9 is easy to overlook. It says, For a great door and effectual is open unto me, and there are many adversaries. Paul's planning his trip to culminate in Jerusalem, where he'll find opportunity and adversity. Now, understand this. Just because there's resistance from adversaries, that doesn't mean it isn't God's will to pursue it. The reference to Timothy's appearance in Corinth in verses 10 and 11 is to be connected with Acts chapter 19, verse 22. Uh, there we see that Paul had sent Timothy and Erastus into Macedonia. Therefore, at the time Paul wrote this, Timothy was traveling and was expected to arrive in Corinth. You'll notice Paul's words of solidarity with Apollos in verse 12. Since he dealt with the fragmented groups at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17, it apparently was important for him to show the Corinthians that he and Apollos were unified. In the course of speaking specifically regarding some of the folks there in the church at Corinth, Paul gives a challenge to them in verse 13 when he says, Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong. Now that phrase, quit you like men, comes from a single compound Greek word, and literally here's what it means. It means, act like a man. These are strong verses that are encouraging a steadfast Christian testimony for all believers. Then Paul issues a reminder of the necessity of demonstrating charity. That's the Greek word agape, which means sacrificial love. Demonstrating charity to one another. That's a theme that he emphasized extensively in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Finally, in his closing remarks, he mentions the house of Stephanus. Stephanus was a member of the church at Corinth whose family were among those that Paul had baptized. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 16. Now, many think that Stephanus was the Corinthian jailer of Acts chapter 16, verses 25 to 40. We don't have any additional information regarding the identity of Fortunatus. Paul first met Aquila and Priscilla in, in, spoken of here in verse 19, back in Acts chapter 18, verse 2. Now, according to Charles Ryrie's reference Bible, the holy kiss in this passage was an expression of Christian love and was apparently restricted to one's own sex. That's what he writes. Verse 21 indicates that Paul had dictated his letter for another to write, but he wrote verse 21 all by himself. And then we have a rather blunt ending in verses 22 through 24. He says in verse 22, If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema maranatha. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Now, for those who think that the church needs to be a safe haven for diversity in thought, including those who have no regard for trusting Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, well, here's the verse that should put that unscriptural notion into perspective. Because verse 22 says, If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, maranatha. The Greek word for anathema in this passage is an exact transliteration into English from Aramaic through Greek. And it's used a total of six times in the New Testament. In every other place, it's translated accursed. That's four times. Or curse, one time. 
I'm not sure why the King James Version translators chose to actually transliterate it exactly from the Greek when they say anathema maranatha rather than to translate it. The word maranatha transliterates through two languages, again, Aramaic to Greek to English, King James Version. It Virgo may have been a common greeting among the early Christians, and it literally means, O Lord, come. Actually, the Greek sentence in this verse ends after the word anathema. At that point, the curse has been pronounced. Then a complete sentence in Greek is formed by a single word, that word maranatha, transliterated from two words, maron and atha in Aramaic and Greek, thus signaling how much he was looking forward to the return of Jesus Christ, at which time the believers would be received. However, for those who were not looking forward to the return, nor did they love Jesus, Paul issues a curse upon them. It's just this clear. The local church is to be comprised of people who've trusted Jesus Christ as personal Savior, and those people demonstrate a desire for service. Paul spent the whole book of 1 Corinthians taking to task those in the church of Corinth who were contrary to that notion. This verse with a curse. Oh, that kind of has a ring to it, doesn't it? Verse with a curse. It's designed to say, in essence, if you're hanging in the church for some other reason than for the purpose of developing a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you should leave. Read verse 22 again, and you may think that even I have understated the strength of this verse just a bit. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walker.